Good morning. Yeah, some of you are still sleeping. I can hear it. Good morning. All right, yeah. It's pretty slushy out there, isn't it? And it's a, I know people are moving slow, and um, there's good reason to move slow. And so I know um, I'm still catching up. But I'll tell you what, as I think of how, um, <clears throat> you know, a little snowfall messes us up and messes up our schedule and messes up our lives, or, you know, a little thing like power going out for a few hours totally changes life. It's almost like you can't function. Um, it, it's, it's amazing at the little things, which are really big things, in our lives. And as I think about all of that, I'm amazed as I think about my God. Because nothing's a surprise to him. Nothing is a surprise to him at all. And um, there's nothing that slows him down. There's nothing that um, um, he slips and slides on. Uh, he, nothing catches him by surprise. And that's actually quite exciting for all of us human beings that he is our God. Because that means when we're slipping and sliding and when we're having trouble, we have a sure foundation. We have the Lord Jesus Christ we can rest in and hope in. So if you weren't able to get out of your driveway this morning, you're joining this live stream, welcome. And it's good to see all of those of you who made it as well. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Chronicles 19. 2 Chronicles 19. This morning... We're going to learn about a little piece of history that, I'll be blunt, is one of my all-time favorite accounts in the Bible. But you know what? It's, it's kind of tucked in there in the book of 2 Chronicles. You know, when you start reading the books of First and Second Chronicles, you start out with all those genealogies. And some people open up the book of 2 Chronicles and um, they find these genealogies, and they're like, oh, no. And um, I don't know how many of you have ever been tempted to just skip the book of Second Chronicles. Um, but if you did, you would miss chapters 19 or 20. Or maybe you would be reading along, and you would be reading in chapter 18, and you'd be like, oh, well, I already read about this. I read about this back in, in um, First Kings. And you'd be right. First Kings records the same events as recorded in 2 Chronicles 18. 2 Chronicles 18 records for us when, um, when Ahab and Jehoshaphat went up against Ben-Hadad. Remember, we learned about that last week, right? And it's a parallel passage. And last week, we spent our time over in 1 Kings. And when we got to the end of 1 Kings chapter 22, we just kind of stopped because the rest of the chapter is just kind of a summary it's a summary of Ahab's life, it's a summary of Jehoshaphat's life, and it's a summary of Ahab's son's life. And so we just kind of stopped in, right there at the end. But you know, we can't do that. Because if we don't turn over to 2 Chronicles, we will miss some exciting, exciting pieces of history. So what I should have you do is actually turn back to 1 Kings chapter 22, and at the end of Ahab's life, write in your Bible 2 Chronicles 19 and 20. Now, we're not exactly sure that it happened right, right that moment, but some of it did. 
And so it's a parallel jump, but it's not recorded in 1st or 2nd Kings. I know we're at the end of 1st Kings, and we're about to jump into 2nd Kings, but the events we're going to learn about today are only recorded for us in 2nd Chronicles. And it's an amazing event. There are so many lessons for all of us to learn here in 2nd Chronicles. Where did we leave off? Last week, we left off with Ahab's chariot in Samaria, didn't we? And the guy was washing the blood out of it. Ahab was dead. Well, what happened to Jehoshaphat? I mean, the last time we saw Jehoshaphat, he was in the middle of this battle, all dressed up in his royal garments. So, of course, everybody would mistake him as the king. Well, he was the king, but he wasn't the king of Israel. But he, remember, he cried out to the Lord, and it says that the Lord delivered him. Well, then what happened to him? Well, if you were reading 1 Kings, you would have no idea what happened to him. Because it just kind of is the end. And it goes right in and says he lived his life, he reigned this many more years, and he died. And his son became king after him. But when we turn over to 1 Chronicles chapters 19 and 20, we find out that there are some major and important events in Jehoshaphat's life. Let's look at our timeline. Now, some of you might be saying, I know that timeline. I've seen it so many times. I'm going to give you a hint. One of these Sunday mornings, I'm going to show up with a pop quiz. How many of you know what pop quizzes are? You know what pop quizzes are? A pop quiz means it's a surprise quiz. And I'm going to quiz you on this timeline. Now, how many of you think you could um, figure out the names to those first three kings up there on the screen? If I were to leave those blank, you think you could fill in those first three kings? How many of you think you could fill in those first three kings? Okay, Saul, David, Solomon. All right? That's pretty easy, right? I think most of you could do that, especially if I had you fill in the blanks or you had to just do matching. You think if I gave you the names and then you just had to put a letter that matched, you could do it. You think you could do that? Okay. Well, you guys definitely should know the first three kings. I mean, they're real easy. Saul, David, Solomon. Right? Now we turn over to this, and we've got all these names. Now you might think, what's so important about all these people? Well, there's some important pieces, and you might wonder, well, we're learning about Jehoshaphat down here. Even my pointer's cold this morning. Um, we, we, we're learning about Jehoshaphat. What does Jehoshaphat have to do with all the other people here on this timeline? Well, several things. Um, one of them is the relation to the northern kingdom. But also, there's some events that have already happened that we tend to forget that lay the foundation for what we're going to learn about here in 2 Chronicles 19. Like, for example, it says here, let's read the first verse. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. So the battle 
end of chapter 18 here records for us that the battle against Syria ended with Ahab being dead at the going down of the sun. Meanwhile, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, seer went out to meet him. Now, when you read that, how many of you instantly know who Jehu is? Elijah thinks he knows. Ethan, Elijah. You know you've met him before. This isn't the first time for Jehu to appear. In fact, if I were to ask you, how many of you know who Hananiah is? Would you know who Hananiah is? There's a few of you. You know, and you've met Hananiah. This isn't just like, you know, sometimes we, we hear about so-and-so character and we find out that his um, father's name was Hananiah. You know, like the sons of Zebedee. We know nothing about Zebedee, but yet he was the father of these two disciples of Jesus. And it's your way of identifying which ones. This isn't like that. Well, it is like that. It's identifying him. But it's significant because Hanani has appeared previously in history. Now, you see Hanani up there, but you don't see Jehu. Because see, Jehu's obscure. And when I made this timeline, I just totally forgot about him. And the, the source that I used to help put together this timeline totally forgot about Jehu. But he too fits in here. But you know what's fascinating about Jehu? Is he just kind of appears and disappears. He appears and he disappears. Well, in order for us to understand some things about Jehu, we need to understand some things about his dad. Now that you see his dad's name up there on the timeline and where his dad's name is positioned on the timeline, does it help you at all? Remember anything about Hanani? Anything? Um, did you play Asa too? Who played Asa? Who played Asa? I don't remember who played Asa. Was it you, William? No, I think it was you. Asa's the guy that pointed out his hand. Did you have to point out your hand at the prophet? Lay hold on him? Your hand got stuck there? I'm not sure who it was. Remember Asa? He stretched forth his hand and he said, lay hold on him. Remember what happened? It was Jack. You're your father's son. Yeah, you remember that? You remember that? Jeroboam played that. Am I mixing my characters up? Ah, you all caught me. I'm miss Am I missing my character up? Oh, you know who it was. Okay. So it was, you're right, Jeroboam was the guy who said lay hold on him. And I'm missing, mixing up the prophets. So let me rewind. See, I'm the guy teaching and I'm mixing it up. See how important it is? Hanani was the guy who came in to Asa when Asa had joined up with Baasha, king of Israel, to go and fight against Syria. Okay, Ben-Hadad. Am I right there? No, I'm not. You think, wait a minute. This is all confusing. I know. That's why I need a timeline. 
what was really going on is Baasha was attacking, not really attacking, but was invading and building fortified cities down along his border, threatening Asa. Remember we talked about it, we said it was like the Great Wall of China. It was to keep all the people in the northern kingdom. And Asa didn't join up with Baasha. Who did Asa join up with? Ben-Hadad of Syria. And he had Ben-Hadad of Assyria attack Baasha's northern cities and take them away. And that caused Baasha to stop building his fortified cities down against Judah and to go rescue his other cities, which he didn't actually rescue. Well, when he did this, Hanani was a prophet of God who was sent into the throne room of King Asa and was rebuked, rebuked King Asa for trusting in the Syrian king Ben-Hadad. And do you remember whether or not Asa was a good king or a wicked king? Who remembers? Hannah? He was kind of bold. Well, by the general statements made about him, he was a good king. There are statements made of their life generally, and generally he was a good king. It doesn't mean he was perfect, and it doesn't mean he was sinless. He had problems. In fact, what I'm going to remind you about is one of his big problems. When Hanani came in and rebuked him, he commanded that he be taken and thrown into prison. Does this ring a bell to you? The prophet who was rebuking Asa, the good king, got thrown in prison. And that's the last we ever hear about Hanani, except for the surname he left behind, his son, Jehu. Now, you've already met Jehu. Now that we're going through this, does any of this ring a bell to you? Do you think that if your dad was a prophet who went before the powerful king Asa and got himself thrown in jail for rebuking the powerful king, that when God came to you and said, I want you to go to a king who's a whole lot more wicked than the king who threw your father in prison, one of the northern kings, and I want you to go and rebuke him, do you think you'd want to go? In my flesh, I would not want to go. But I should go, shouldn't I? That's the first time that we met Jehu. Jehu we actually met back in 1 Kings chapter 16 when he was sent to pronounce judgment upon Baasha, the wicked king, and say that his house was going to be just like the house of Jeroboam, cut off. This family of prophets had hard jobs, didn't they? Hanani was sent to rebuke Asa for his alliance with Syria. He gets thrown in jail, never to be heard from again. His son, Jehu, is sent to Baasha, a wicked king, to tell him your family is going to be cut off. No one in your family is going to survive. 
He survived it. Aren't you glad Jehu survived it? How do we know he survived it? Because he shows up right here. After Baasha is long gone, after Omri is long gone, and now here when Ahab is dead, Jehu shows up in the scene again. And you know what his job is? To rebuke a king. This poor family. I wouldn't want to be these prophets. Hananiah's response was the one who was to rebuke Asa. And then his son rebukes Baasha. And now the son, Jehu, is commanded to go and rebuke Jehoshaphat. Now why do you think he's going to rebuke Jehoshaphat? Before we read, how many of you think you know? What did Jehoshaphat do? Remember the history we just finished. Jehoshaphat's coming home. He's just been hanging out with Ahab, went to war with Ahab. He's coming home in peace. Ahab's dead. Why might Jehu be coming to rebuke him? Brother Ray knows. Looking for somebody younger. Does Elijah know? You sure? All right, let's hear it. He says, for joining affinity with Ahab. You're partly right, Elijah. You're partly right. But here's the difference. What is affinity? Remember that word? What is affinity? We need to learn this word. This is an important word. Do you know what affinity means, Nathan? Who, who thinks you know? Hannah, what's affinity? That's right. It's when Jehoshaphat married his son to Ahab's daughter. Affinity is a peace treaty, but it's a peace treaty that involves a marriage. Now, why I said Elijah's partially right is because that is there, but that's not the specific reason that Jehu rebukes him. Jehu specifically rebukes him for what he's just done. It's been years probably since they joined affinity. What, what he's just done is he's gone and he has made covenants with Ahab and they've gone to war together as friends, Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And so Jehu, the son of Hananiah, comes to Jehoshaphat. And he has a message for Jehoshaphat. Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. What was it that he had done wrong? Does anybody remember? Look at it. What did he do? I love how God rebukes and uses his prophets to rebuke. Sometimes it's direct, like with David. David wasn't really direct goes through this whole little situation to bring conviction in the heart of David, 
And then Nathan the prophet says, thou art the man. Direct. It's all there, indirect, and then it's direct. Notice here he's asking it as a question. I think there's some great wisdom in that as moms and dads and as leaders. When you're trying to correct someone, be careful about just saying the way it is. Sometimes that's what we want to do. We just want to grab a child and hold on to him by the shoulders and say, this is the way it is, right? Notice this. He asks this question. Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Do you see how a question has power? Now Jehoshaphat has something to think about. He hasn't walked in and said, you're wrong for helping the ungodly and loving them that hate the Lord. Now, I think there's a time and a place to be that direct. But here, he's not. He's wanting to see Jehoshaphat think about the situation, allow Jehoshaphat to do something about the situation. And so he asks this question. Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Now you answer the question. If you were Jehoshaphat that day, or just thinking back to the question, how would you answer that question? Should you help the ungodly? Should you love those who hate the Lord? It's a little bit of a trick question, isn't it? Because there's a sense in which, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we go out to help people. I mean, we even learn that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Right? But there was something different about this. This was more than just being neighborly, even though they're neighboring kingdoms. This was Jehoshaphat behaving himself in fear. It was responding and helping Ahab deal with a common enemy, an enemy that God had established to judge Ahab with. This situation he went into without seeking the Lord. Well, it's kind of interesting. He did seek the Lord, didn't he? Remember, he's sitting there in Ahab's court, and he says, can't we hear from someone of the Lord? Isn't there a prophet of the Lord here? And remember, the prophet of the Lord came in, and the prophet of the Lord said what? You're going to die. So Jehoshaphat, why did you go? It was specifically a situation that he knew going into was a battle that God had set up and established. There was a council in heaven that he learned about. That this battle was orchestrated by God and all the details of it so that Ahab would get himself killed. And Jehoshaphat knew that. And he went to help him. Shh. Should you have helped the ungodly in this case? No. And I think this day when Jehu spoke to Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat had the same feeling. 
he knew he was wrong. He knew he was wrong. But this isn't just a question. There is chastening of the Lord. There is discipline from the Lord, judgment from the Lord coming because of his actions. For Jehu says, therefore, because you help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord, therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. Well, what is this? The wrath upon him from before the Lord. Well, we have to keep reading to find out. But um, it hasn't yet happened. In fact, it doesn't yet happen until chapter 20. But in the meantime, Jehoshaphat hears this, and he knows that he's done wrong. He hears that this is, that, that this is a problem. And then do you see how Jehu encourages him? Look at verse 3. Nevertheless, so here he said, asked him a question, and the obvious answer to the question is, I'm wrong. And then he says to him, because you're wrong, there's wrath upon you. Then he uses the word nevertheless, meaning that in spite of, because of, even though all this is true that I've just asked and said, there's some good. He says, nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. This is fascinating. We have Jehu rebuking Jehoshaphat. He asks him a question of which Jehoshaphat is guilty. He pronounces a judgment and he concludes it with an encouragement. And he cites out two things. He says, nevertheless, there is good found in thee. You know, when I read this, I, I, I find hope, don't you? Remember we were talking, Hannah, you said earlier, Asa, he was kind of good and bad. Well, that's what's going on here with Jehoshaphat. He was kind of good and bad. You see, he, he had good. He, he knew what was right and was, was wrong. And in his heart, he wanted to do what was right. But he had failures. Just like me. Just like you. Just like all of us. And the key is found in the very last phrase. For thou hast prepared thine heart to seek God. In my Bible, I underlined that. That's really important. This is also why so often we need to be careful when we come and we rebuke or we reprove people. Sometimes when people go and do rebuking, which is needed, I, I hats off. I give esteem to Jehu, to his father. In all occasions, they've been called upon to rebuke kings. Re rebuke is needed. But rebuke isn't always for the purpose of utterly destroying one. Especially in the New Testament. We find in Galatians that if your brother you see has sinned, what does it say? Does it say go 
and destroy him, destroy his reputation, just ruin him. Is that what it says? No. In Galatians 6, it says that we, in the spirit of meekness, restore such a one, giving heed lest we also fall. Here, we have a situation where rebuke is needed, but the rebuke is not there to totally, utterly annihilate this guy. It's there to restore him. That's a piece that sometimes, as parents and as leaders, we don't always use like we should. Is our goal to restore them or to ruin them? We make mistakes. Jehoshaphat made a mistake. And here, the wisdom that God has given to Jehu in rebuking him, and it's not soft. He hasn't softened it. In fact, you want to know what this wrath is? I'm going to tell you a little bit ahead of the story. This wrath is going to result in three nations invading Judah to utterly annihilate Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat responds to those three nations is key. How will he respond to those? And what's really going on right now is Jehu is preparing Jehoshaphat to respond to the wrath that's upon him. Have you thought? Think through that. Think through that. Trouble is coming to Jehoshaphat because of what Jehoshaphat is doing, but Jehu, in bringing the warning and the pronouncement of judgment of this, is also giving him the very tools that he needs to gain victory even through the wrath that's coming. It's there. You have prepared your heart to seek God. What he's basically saying here is, Jehoshaphat, you've messed up. Trouble's going to come because you messed up. There's still good in you. You know God. You have prepared your heart to seek God. And what he's saying indirectly here is don't give up. Because you know we have an adversary, the devil, who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And some of the greatest times he has victories is when God is working with us after failures. When we are convicted because what we know we've done is wrong. And the devil wants to say, see, you're ruined. You're ruined. You're just a hypocrite. Give it up. Just throw in the towel. Be done with it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I've been attacked like that. And I imagine most of you have too. You've had failure, you know you've done wrong. You've either been rebuked by the Holy Spirit or you've been rebuked by mom or dad or you've been rebuked by a friend or even a stranger. You feel terrible. Like, oh, I'm such a bad hypocrite. Well, you need to stop being a hypocrite. But sometimes when we're tempted or when we're rebuked about being a hypocrite, we are tempted 
to stop being a hypocrite and just live godless. No, no, no. Stop being a hypocrite. Stop being a hypocrite. But that doesn't mean you just be genuine and live like the devil or live like your flesh wants you to. It means that you stand up in God's strength, you put on his armor, and you go fight the next battle. Because there's another battle. This is really, really, really true for young people when they're growing and in their, in their teenage years and when they're getting into what we call in this modern era adulting. It's hard. All life is hard. And we are in a war. And just because you've been beaten down doesn't mean you stay down. But you get up and you keep going. You keep on fighting. Not in your own strength, but by preparing your heart to seek God. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Because you know what happens in Jehoshaphat's case? You might think that as he looks at his situation and his failures, he just give up. Let it come. Let the wrath come. Whatever. No. As we read on, we find out that Jehoshaphat dwelt at Jerusalem, verse 4. And he went out again through the people from Beersheba in the far south to Mount Ephraim, actually into the northern borders of Israel. And what did he do? He went on a campaign telling everybody about how good he was, right? What do you think Jehoshaphat does? He, he gets this rebuke, and he immediately he goes on his campaign tour. But what's the purpose of his campaign tour? It says in the end of verse 4, and brought them back unto the Lord God of their fathers. You see what's going on here? Is that Jehoshaphat's been rebuked, and he's been reminded about preparing his heart to seek God, which is a little bit of an indirect way of saying, keep doing it. And so he keeps doing it, but not just for himself. He's going to lead the entire nation in seeking and returning back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. And there's ways that he did this. One of the issues that was going on in this time period, and we learned this actually from Micah. Remember last week we read Micah, which was a prophet that came 120 years after this event. Micah said that the statutes of Omri and the ordinances of Ahab are still in existence. And the whole book of Micah is filled with the fact that the nation is filled with injustice. There's not justice. There's no justice. You, you were wronged. There's nothing that can be done about it. In fact, wronged people are wronged again. The, the courts, the judges, they do nothing. Apparently, that was a problem. And Jehoshaphat identified it. For it says that he set judges in the land throughout all the fenced cities of Judah, city by city. He's got a plan for these judges. What's the plan, Jehoshaphat? 
not for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Wherefore, now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it. For there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, nor respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. Be judges, but not just judges. Righteous judges. Did you see what he said? Take heed to what you do. It means pay attention to what you're doing. For you judge not for man, but for the Lord. That's the reason why, in several times in the Old Testament, judges are actually given the Hebrew name Elohim. Elohim. Do you know how we normally translate the word Elohim? Anybody know? How many of you know? How do we normally translate the Hebrew word Elohim? We normally translate it as God. And that's why Jesus later on in history says, even in your own law are not the judges called gods. What he's saying is they were called Elohims. And that's what's being described here. These judges, these judges are appointed not because of their own skill or abilities. They're appointed as representatives for the Lord. And by the way, it's the Lord he's telling these judges who is with you in judgment. And this is very true in the theocracy of Israel. Not quite the same today, but very true in this time period. So he says, knowing this, that you're judging for God and that God is with you in judgment, wherefore now, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. You need to fear the Lord, that's Jehovah. You need to recognize that he's the judge of all the earth and he does right. And he's gonna hold you accountable as a judge. Take heed, what's that mean? That means that you not only just pay attention to what you're doing, but you take steps to correct what you're doing wrong. In all of this, knowing these facts, take heed and do it. He says this, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God. Do you know what iniquity is? Iniquity is what makes sin so terrible. God doesn't have any sin, nor iniquity. He has none of it. There is none with the Lord our God. So what he's saying here is, be like the Lord. And in your judgment, and he says then, nor respect of persons. Now how many of you would think it was fair? Charlie, do you think it would be fair if William came and stole all your savings? And you went to mom and dad and you said, William took all my savings. He stole it. And then mom and dad are going to judge this matter. But William goes to dad and says, hey, dad, I'll give you half of what I stole from Charlie if you rule in my favor. Do you think it would be fair if your dad took half of what William stole from Charlie to, to rule in his favor? How many of you think that's fair? <laughs> oh, no. No, it's not fair. There's a respect of persons and there's a giving of gifts. Or, or how about this? Uh, I probably won't do this in family dynamics. It might get too, too dicey. But um, imagine that um, someone has done you wrong. And that someone is a special friend of the judge. And the judge sides with him just because they're friends. Is that right? 
Or, get this, the person who has done wrong is powerful. And because he's powerful, the judge is going to side with him. And, boy, you know, Charlie, you're not very powerful, are you? You don't even have very much money to steal, do you? Not much, huh? But it wouldn't be fair anyway, would it? You know, so many injustices actually happen against the poor. Do you know that? Many, many of them happen against those who are poor and those who are weak. Now, by the way, justice doesn't mean that you then exploit the rich and the powerful. Justice means you do what? Sometimes we get that confused in our modern world. Somehow we think that because the rich and the powerful have been the oppressors for so many generations that the justice is to oppress the rich and the powerful. No, justice is to do right. And if that means the rich and the powerful are oppressing, then they should be judged. But just because you're rich and powerful doesn't mean you're oppressing. But it's a problem. But with the Lord, it's not a problem. He is not a respecter of persons. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how powerful you are. It doesn't matter how many friends you have. It doesn't matter how well-connected you are. With God, he is no respecter of persons. That's special to us as people. Because even if we are oppressed and we go to God, we know that he's the judge of all the earth. And in the big, big, big picture of things, he's going to judge. And he will judge righteously. And it doesn't matter how powerful, rich, or connected you may be. We can be the weakest, the smallest, and God will still give us justice. And so the human judges should be the same way. They should not be respecters of persons, respecting one person compared to a different person. No, just and right. He shouldn't be taking of gifts. That's what we call a bribe, you know, that little deal transaction we were talking about over here. You know, that, that, that wouldn't work. God doesn't do that. Neither should the judges. So he does this. He sets up judges in all of the cities throughout the land so that righteousness can prevail. Sadly, this is not going on in the northern kingdom, which is why it continues to spiral. And in a, you know, Ahab is the guy who comes and sees his neighbor's vineyard and goes, oh, I like that. And since I'm king, I respect a person's, I respect myself. And so I'm going to take his land and kill him for it. That's what Ahab's doing. Jehoshaphat is setting up policies here, saying, no, it's not that way. So he sets up judges. And then it tells us in verse 8, moreover in Jerusalem did Jehoshaphat set up Levites and of the priests and of the chief of the fathers of Israel for the judgment of the Lord and for controversies when they returned to Jerusalem. There's controversies and there's problems. Some of them are bigger than can be handled out in the courts. Some of them are going to come into Jerusalem. He's organizing and preparing for that. And so now he gives these Levites this charge. Thus shall you do in the fear of the Lord faithfully and with a perfect heart. And what cause soever shall come to you of your brethren that dwell in their cities between blood and blood, between law and commandment, statutes and judgments. Ye shall even warn them that they trespass not against the Lord. And so wrath come upon you and upon your brethren. This do, and ye shall not trespass. And behold, Amariah, the chief priest, is over you in all matters of the Lord. And Zebediah, the son of Ishmael, the ruler of the house of Judah, for all the king's matters. 
Also the Levites shall be officers before you. Deal courageously, and the Lord shall be with you good. So there's a plan. He sets up and he establishes judges, priests, and Levites to not only bring about justice, but to cause all of the people to return to the Lord. This is exciting. Continue back again. Think back to those times when you've been tempted to give up. You know you've done wrong, whatever. I'm done with this. Just give up. That's the time to prepare your heart to seek God and to lead others in doing the same. That's what Jehoshaphat is doing in this case. He's established and organized these things. And so we turn the page to chapter 20. And it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Here we see the wrath of God upon Jehoshaphat and upon Judah. The wrath that Jehu foretold. How do you think Jehoshaphat's going to respond? How did his father handle it when he was scared of Baasha? He went and he hired Ben-Hadad Sr. of Syria, his majesty, powerful king, to go attack his enemies. Now the message comes to King Jehoshaphat. There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea, the salt sea, on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazar Tamar, which is in Gedi. A great multitude is coming. A great multitude, an army of three nations is coming against Jehoshaphat. And do you see the first phrase of verse 3? And Jehoshaphat feared. He was terrified. So what's he going to do? Maybe he should call up Ahab's son and join in an alliance with them. I know. Maybe he should call up Ben-Hadad and see if Ben-Hadad would join with him in fighting against the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites. Maybe he should go get help. I know. From Egypt. They're good at helping us. Now, some of you are looking at me incredulously, as if you know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. Asa was a godly king, and he went and hired Ben-Hadad. So why can't Jehoshaphat? Why? Ahab, he was having trouble with Ben-Hadad Jr., and he hired Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat came and helped him. So 
why would it be any surprise to you that when Jehoshaphat's afraid that he goes and hires Egypt or Israel to the north or Syria? And that what's been going on? Well, I, I would normally say you have to wait till next time, but, but I can't leave you there. Jehoshaphat was afraid. But you know what he did? He did the right thing. It says, And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. You think that's going to do any good? Well, you will have to wait till next time to find out on that. Jehoshaphat, he was afraid. I'd like to just spend a moment on that point. Fear. Fear is powerful. And there's different kinds of fear. You know, we've read about the fear of the Lord. That's one thing. The fear of the Lord can actually be a strong confidence. What we see going on here is that Jehoshaphat's afraid of Moab, Ammon, and Edom. He's afraid of them. And the positive thing is that he's also afraid of the Lord. And it's because he's afraid of the Lord or has the fear of the Lord that his response to his fear of these other nations is the right response. You ever been afraid? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been afraid of the consequences of your failure? Have you ever been afraid of the consequences of your failure? That's really what's going on here with Jehoshaphat. These are the consequences of his failure. And he's afraid. But what's he do? What's he do? What do you do when you know you've done wrong and the consequences come? How do you handle the consequences? I hope that you handle them just as Jehoshaphat and set yourself to seek the Lord. Lord God, we seek you. We seek you this morning. We know that you are good and great and holy. And we need you. We are weak and we are frail and we don't know what to do. So we look to you. May we seek you with all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our soul that you might show yourself strong, that you might glorify yourself in all things. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.